Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Equifax got hacked, but don't worry, we've got the latest details, some top tips for staying safe, and a debate over just who's to blame for vulnerable open source software. Then, Google's breaking up with Symantec, and it might affect a certificate near you. Plus, we take a little time out for sysadmin 101, this time, ticketing systems. And of course, we've got your fantastic feedback, a wind-powered roundup, yes, that's right, and so much more on this week's episode of TechStamp. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 336, broadcast live on September 12th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is the ever-ready for just about any challenge you have for him. That's why we love him here. That's right, it's Dan. This week, we've got the challenge of video again. Look at that. I haven't seen your face for a while, but it's always a pleasure. We're here. We're here. How are you we're doing We're in today? a room. Pretty good. We're in a remote location, but we're here. Yes, that's right. The show must go on, and it will. Uh, I was traveling south to VBSDCon uh, late last week. There's a developer, FreeBSD Developer Summit on Friday, the conference on Saturday and Sunday. No. Friday and Saturday. The Dev Summit was Thursday. So then the conference was Friday and Saturday and met up with Alan Jude and a whole lot of other people that uh, our listeners well know. Um, Found some really obscure stuff in the init script for FreeBSD. It it got deprecated for about half an hour and then undeprecated when Alan said, no, 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 I can use this. (laughs) Nice. It found some use after all. Excellent. It did. It did. Wonderful. Well, that sounds like a that sounds like a, a very fun activity. I spent some time camping in the North Cascades National Park, which was a lot of fun. But mm-hmm. now we're back. We're ready to do a text nab. Anything else you yes. want to have before we should uh, jump into the show? I have a trunk full of hardware. Oh, a trunk. We, we, we might talk about it later. Oh, okay. Just a little tease there for the audience. Yes, Excellent. yes. Stick around. <laughs> okay, well then, uh, let's jump on to our first story, and uh, that's with our dear friend, Mr. Brian Krebs. Yes. And in case you haven't heard, and I'm sure you have, there's been a major breach, and this is much more significant much more significant than any previous breach I've ever heard of. And the reason is it's social security numbers, possibly birth dates and phone numbers and license details and addresses. What get released, we're really not sure because Equifax is not really telling us yet. Um, What I want to go through here in Krebs on Securities post is what you should know in terms of minimizing your risk. And some of these things I've already done before the breach was announced, but one of these things I did this morning after I was reading his article. So don't panic, just be aware and monitor. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. Don't TLDR. Just do what you can, get it done with, and go back to your rest of your life. Okay, awesome. And as I go through this, I'll interrupt myself to to give you 
bits of information that are slightly misleading because it's a U.S.-centric article, as it should be, because it's a U.S. breach, and it mostly affects U.S. citizens, but not entirely exclusive. Okay, so it remains unclear whether those responsible for stealing Social Security numbers and other data on as many as 143 million Americans from Big Three Credit Bureau, Equifax, intend to sell this data to identity thieves. So did they seal it in order to sell it or did they seal it just to have it? But if there ever is a reminder that you, the consumer, are ultimately responsible for protecting your financial future, this is it. Here's what you need to know and what you should do in response to this unprecedented breach. All right. So it's not just Americans whose data was stolen here. It's basically consumers in the USA because there are a lot of people in the USA who are not Americans and have credit profiles. Uh, What is it? I can't think of the right word. Uh, Anyway. A credit score, credit details, credit history maybe? Yes, yes, credit history, yes. You don't have to be an American to be in the US and have have credit history and credit score. So just that little thing. Uh, Some of these Q&A that we'll go through below were published in a 2015 story, but he's upgraded it um, with new information specific to this intrusion. So I recommend that you read the whole thing. I'm just going to go through and summarize some of the big things. So what information was jeopardized? So basically, Equifax is pointing out it's still ongoing. We really don't know. But the risk includes social security numbers, birth dates, and addresses on 143 million people. They say Americans, but it's not just Americans. They also said that the breach involved some driver's license numbers, although it didn't say how many or which states. Credit card numbers for roughly 209,000 uh consumers, and certain dispute documents with personal identifying information on approximately 182,000 consumers. So for the majority of people, it's it's going to be um, SSN, uh, birth date, and addresses, which is pretty significant. With that information, you can open a line of credit. Now, Was the breach limited to Americans? No. The intruders got limited personal information for certain UK and Canadian residents. So people not resident in the US, but also not necessarily US citizens. Um, It was not disclosed what that information was for those residents or how many there were from the UK and Canada. Now, there, there was some legal language in the terms of service that consumers must accept before enrolling for the free credit monitoring service that Equifax was requiring one to waive their rights to sue the company in con- connection with this breach. That was there, but it's no longer true. Or it's not true. Not according to Equifax. The company issued a statement over the weekend saying that nothing in the agreement applies to this cybersecurity event. Uh, I see. Yeah, that is kind uh, of confusing uh, there. Yeah, I, I trust them. Now, what you should do is take advantage of the credit monitoring offer. It's free, but it's not necessarily going to prevent you from identity theft. 
and credit monitoring service does not protect you from identity theft. It helps you to identify when people are attempting to do so. And it doesn't prevent thieves from using your identity to open new lines of credit. It just helps you um, to alert you when a thief does steal your identity. Right. That, Keeps that's you aware what of what's going yeah. on, but not protecting yeah. anything. Right. right. It's monitoring, not policing. And even policing wouldn't stop. But anyway, so basically, really what you want to do is file a security freeze. And I did this maybe a year or two ago. And since then, I've applied for a credit card and got a thaw and then refroze it. And I got my credit new credit card. So file a security freeze, also known as a credit freeze, with the four major credit bureaus. What's a security freeze? Well, basically, it blocks any potential creditors from being able to view or pull your credit file unless you affirmatively, affirmatively unfreeze or thaw your file beforehand. And basically, with a freeze in place in your credit file, ID thieves can apply for credit in your name all they want, but they will not succeed in getting new lines of credit in your name because few, if any, creditors will extend that credit without being first able to gauge how risky it is to loan you, blah, blah, blah. Right. So basically, a reputable credit providing company wants to see how risky you are before they're going to give you anything. So this this is your block. Do you, do you have a credit freeze yes, in place? Yes, I do. And, you know, it's, it hasn't been... It, yeah, it's a, sometimes it's a little hurdle you have to jump through, like when you are getting a new, credit, uh, a new card. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it seems, it seems very much worthwhile... Uh, something to go through easily protect yourself and you know there's a lot of times where I don't you know I, don't, I maybe don't want people to be able to freely query my credit score at, at exactly uh, especially with you know we, we've already seen so many scandals about people setting up fake accounts mm-hmm. or otherwise mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. seems like a worthy precaution yeah and it took me maybe two hours in total to do all mine a, a mm-hmm. few years ago um be sure you keep good copies of the pins that they give you because that's the only way you can unfreeze. So put it in your password manager, write it down the slip of paper, tuck it in behind your monitor. You know, well, right. Whatever, all the whatever system thing. you're already using for your secure yeah. and uh, irreplaceable yeah. documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do have one of those, right? Right. A secure document? We'll, we'll hope so. I, I was asking the audience, but yes, oh, I'm sorry. sure you do, of course. Uh, you're dead. I have a file folder. Yeah, I have a go. file folder. Yeah. Is there anything I should do in addition to placing a credit freeze that would help me get the upper hand on ID thieves? Yes, there is. Periodically order a free copy of your credit report. By law, each of the three major credit reporting bureaus must provide a free copy of your credit report each year via a government-mandated site, annualcreditreport.com. Make note of that your that domain name. Now, because there are four, and this is very clever how he's named this, the best way to take advantage of this right is to make a notation in your calendar to re- request a copy of your report every 128 days. Huh? You're only allowed to do it once you request it from a different one every th- quarter. So... You've got four. You've got three major. uh, Okay, I got that wrong. You've got three major credit reporting bureaus. Every every 120 days, which is every four months, ask a different one for the free credit report, rather than just doing it once a year. 
avoid other sites that offer free credit reports and then try to trick you into signing up for I, something. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. There's a lot of things that bundle those with other services, and that's probably not what you're looking for. I'm also on creditkarma.com. I like that place. Yeah, you've had a good they experience. Do, yeah, they, they do try to sell you stuff, and every time you log in, they have this on. We're checking everything <laughs> for you. We're downloading all the stuff. little animation. It, it, it's just a big splash screen, and it's not doing anything at all. Please stop it. <laughs> You're insulting my intelligence. Uh, yes, here's a plea from the TechSnap program. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was the one thing. Make sure that you sign up for that. Um, fixing that. Um, now, is there anything else I can do? But down here, anything else? Now, this is the new thing that I signed up for today that I was not aware of. And I'm not covering everything in this Krebs article. I'm just summarizing some of the things that I thought were very good to know. So, ID thieves like to intercept offers of new credit and insurance sent via postal mail. So, it's a good idea to opt out of pre-approved credit offers. If you decide to do that and you don't want to receive pre-screened offers of credit and insurance, you have two choices. You can opt out of receiving them for five years or opt out of receiving them permanently. I've chosen to do it permanently because I absolutely despise those things that come in the mail. Not only do I have to open it and shred the contents, it's just a big waste of my time because I'm not going to um, take one of those things, not at all. So, he provides the, the website in there, www.optoutprescreen.com. It's all one word, no hyphens, no nothing. So, go there, complete your request, and in order to opt out permanently, print it out and mail it in. If you don't mail it in, it's only for five years, but I would mail it in. Uh, that's that's my idea to do that. Interesting. That's that's interesting. It has a different timeline there. Yeah, I have not done that, but I will now go do that because you're right. I don't, I'm not interested in those either. I just end up recycling them. So why, why yep. take the risk? Excellent. That's some really helpful advice. Anything else you want to add? Yeah. Um, so, so that's what Krebs said. Mm-hmm. I, I also want to go, go through a couple of um, three other posts that that uh, came to my attention. So, um, one of the things in the Washington Post, one of the things they said, um, they're confirming what Krebs said. Equifax also lost control of an unspecified number of driver's licenses, along with the credit card numbers for two hundred nine thousand and credit dispute documents for 182. So I'm assuming that that, yeah, is a big deal. Now, Equifax has decided to blame their tools and not take responsibility for shoddy security. They are blaming open source software for its record-breaking security breach. I think they're projecting a little too much. Everyone uses open source tools. Everyone is playing on the same playing field. Equifax has just clearly not done the right thing somewhere. So let's read what uh, ZDNet has to say. According to an unsubstantiated report by equity research firm Baird, citing no evidence, the blame falls on the open source server framework Apache Struts. The firm's source, per one report, is believed to be Equifax. It's also not proven that Struts was the source 
of the hole the hackers drove through. So where this is coming from, we don't know. In addition, several headlines, some of which have been retracted, all quote a all source a single quote by a non-technical analyst from an Equifax source. Oh, Sounds very shoddy to me. It does. Not only is that trouble, troubling journalistically, it's problematic from a technical point of view. In case you haven't noticed, Equifax appears to be utterly and completely clueless about their own technology. Equifax's own data breach detector isn't just useless, it's untrustworthy. So, adding insult to injury, the credit agency's advice and support site looks, at first glance, to be a bogus phishing-type site. Equifax Security 2017.com. And so they claim the domain name screams fake. And what does it ask you for if you go there? The last six figures of your social security number and last name. In other words, exactly the kind of information oh, a hacker man. might ask for. No kidding. Now, now, why they didn't put this on a separate host name like Equifax. Uh, security 2017.equifax.com why not spin up a new host name and at least then it's under your domain and there's a certain level of, of nice warm fuzzy feeling about that oh at least it's their domain but no don't go spinning off a new domain that's what all the scammers are going to do yeah exactly and how yeah it's easy to do add a subdomain yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, for example, I know EuroBSTCon does that every year. They spin up a new uh, um, so like host 2017 dot. 2017 dot. Yep. 2016 dot. That seems like a very sane policy. It's very good for archiving. <laughs> it's possible that the hackers found the hole on their own, but zero-day exploits aren't that common. To quote the renowned security expert, Swift on Security... Pretty much 99.99% of computer security incidents are oversights of solved problems. Speaking of which, well, just an aside here. Did you see my uh, tweet about uh, GetS, how GetS should be replaced nowadays? It got a lot of traction over the weekend. It was one of Paul Vixie's um, slides in his talk at uh, VBSDCon. No, I missed that one. Interesting. Well, yeah, it, it's very good. Re I suggest readers go and look at my Twitter feed because it was very cool. What it, what, what the new body of GetS should be? It's just one. It's one line. Abort. <laughs> Excellent. That's all it is. That, all that's it. very fix easy. A lot of, that'll fix a lot of buffer overflow problems. So, uh, back to what ZDNet says. If that's the case, is it the fault of Strut's developers or Equifax's developers, sysadmins or their and their management? Ding, ding, ding. The people who ran code with a, thank you, who ran code with a known total compromise of system integrity should get the blame. The Apache Strut's project management committee said in a statement, which we'll get to, that while they're sorry Equifax suffered a, from a security breach, they're not ready to take on the burden for this all-time security fiasco. Instead, the attackers either used an early, earlier announced vulnerability on an unpatched Equifax server or exploited a vulnerability not known at this point in time, a so-called zero-day exploit, said the statement. I'm more inclined to believe 
it's an unpatched vulnerability rather than a zero day. Anyway. Yeah, I think we'd need some evidence there if that's what we, you know, we'd, we'd need to see some as we go along and maybe we will but uh, as yet you're right that's the more likely scenario uh jumping over to a threat post uh um article quote an apache spokeswoman told reuters on friday that it appeared equifax had not applied patches for flaws discovered this year unquote and really that's all i got to say on this I'm sorry, but I don't accept that it's it's the blame of Apache, not one bit. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem like a maybe it will come out that there is a zero day, but uh, until that time, uh, put up or shut up. Mark Felder and I were talking about this this morning. We were talking about how to set up a website so that it's very difficult to alter stuff once you get in there. How to get in there? How to exploit stuff? And I'm just setting up a, a new web server now, and I'm going to run Nginx and Apache, the, what is it, PHP FPM? Yes. And a friend of ours in Paris said, hey, listen, I'm doing that, and I've got Nginx running in one jail and PHP FPM running in another jail. Ooh, very nice. And then we said, oh, how do you do that? And Mark said, well, I actually had to share the source code between the two of them. I did it on a NullFS mounted into both. And I said, ooh, you could put the source code in a third jail and just have it NullFS mounted for both Nginx and FPFM, PHP FPFM. And then the only way to change the source code is through this third jail, which nobody's going to have access to but you over a back channel via an SSH key. Then Olivier Robert, who was the one that told us about this, said, no, the source code, there's actually only one instance of the source code, and it's in the PHP FPM. But we couldn't figure out how that works because we were quite sure that it needed to be accessible by the Nginx server. Okay. But So hopefully we'll get some background from Olivier and find out how that works. But... We were all saying, ooh, 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 this sounds very nice. We're going to have to try this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, anytime you can, you know, make make every, make every as much read-only as possible, and yes. that, that, that's always super helpful. Uh, oh, yeah. And when you can do so by separating them in jails, hey, even better. Yeah, that sounds like a nice way to do it. I like that. I like that a lot. I'm, I'll report back if I get it working, which I'm, I'm sure I will. Please do. Okay, anything else to cover on the... This horrific data breach. No. Oh, yes. Everyone, freeze your credit. There you go. You heard it right there. Dan said it. Go do it. Don't complain to us later if you didn't. But uh, our deepest sympathies for anyone who was affected by this. uh, We're sorry. Yeah, we're sorry. Maybe... Maybe Equifax can learn and do a better job, and hopefully it will put pressure on the other credit companies to make sure that their you know data security is uh, up to spec. I doubt it. We'll see. Okay, so time to move on. Our first sponsor tonight. That's right, everyone. It's our friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. There you'll find mobile that makes sense. You're probably like, well, okay, you're trying to pitch me on this new thing. One more place that wants my personal identification, all that information. 
Ting is different. For starters, there's no two-year contract. You're not going to have to sign your life away. You don't have to try to pick the plan that you think is going to work for the next two years. There's no early termination fees. There's no overage charges. Ting is simple. It's a smarter way to do mobile. It's pay for what you use. Yeah, say that again. Pay for what you use. It sounds too good to be true, but that's what makes Ting so great. Head on over to their rates page. There, you'll see a simple breakdown of how it all works. Each line starts at just $6 a month. Then you add up how many minutes you use. Okay, well, let's say you use 100 minutes. That's $3. Text messages, you probably don't use any of those because you're a super savvy tech snap viewer. And then your data. Yeah, maybe you're on Wi-Fi a lot like me. 500 megs, that should do it for the month. Let you check things at the grocery store, get your email on the go. But you're Wi-Fi savvy. Your monthly bill would be $19. Now, there may be some local taxes and fees. Ting can't do anything about that. But I think you'll be very very impressed, very surprised, especially when you learn that using techsnap.ting.com, when you go there, you'll get a $25 service credit. So it'll probably pay for more than your first month. Ting has a bunch of other great advantages too, because all the things you come to expect from any of the big name carriers, you know, things like voicemail, tethering, three-way calling, that's all included. And a Ting, the tethering isn't separate. There's no like magic other tethering data bucket. Data is just data. Pay for the amount of data that you use. Makes it super simple if you're a professional, you're on the go, you work remotely, and you really need to make sure that you always have a data connection. To help with that, Ting offers service both GSM and CDMA. So whichever one's better for you or better for the area you're going, you can use their super simple, super intuitive app, their web app, the web dashboard. It's an incredible dashboard. You can do anything you need. Or you can take advantage of their incredible real human customer support. Call in, talk to a real human. They'll help you make sure you've got everything set up, everything good to go. You can bring your own phone or head on over to the Ting shop and uh, use that service credit save a little money on a brand new phone look at that samsung galaxy s8 plus from 824 dollars looks pretty shiny look even shinier on a new ting plan so don't waste your time go to techsnap.ting.com get started with mobile that just makes sense and thank you to ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program Alrighty then on to our next story today this one is definitely something i've had some experience with how about you I've used ticket systems. I bet I was going to bet that you had. So what? Uh, years ago, at home, just for the stuff I was working on at home. Really? I okay. used I used Mantis. Mm, Mantis. Mantis bug tracker, and I liked it. It's it, it wound up being used for the freebies. Uh, sorry for Backkiller project as well. Um, but then sadly, through I have no idea why, it just disappeared. Like I was doing things and forgot to reinstall it somewhere or something and just never uh, went back to get it again. Now you no longer have it. Oh, no. Uh, so, so now I use reminders in, 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 my, in my iPhone. Um, but th- this, po- this article that we're about to go through is not um, about why you should use a particular ticketing system, but basically why you should be using a ticketing system doesn't matter which one it is choose whichever one you want but use one and you 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 know sometimes people complain and moan and groan about uh do i have to use a ticketing system Mm -hmm. wait until you see the benefits of it we tell all our users here no we're not going to do anything unless you open up a ticket you know there are some exceptions but but don't tell anyone right 
you have to open a ticket. If only to stop the constant tapping on your shoulder. Yeah, and I mean, it has many benefits, right? Work tracking, uh, ability to check on status, all those things, which I guess we're going to dive right into. And you can also say, hey, this is what I've worked on this week. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Look at how productive I was, or or not. Yeah. Why tickets are important. I'm not going to read everything. I'm just going to try and summarize. So tickets ensure that tasks aren't forgotten. You know, you get asked to do new stuff all the time. You get stuff coming in through email from phone calls, messages in chat, somebody tapping on the shoulder, someone yelling at you across the room, hey, can you do this? If you had all of that happening all day long constantly, you're not going to get anything done because you'd be working on a task and something new will come in and you'd be expected to handle it right there and then. But... But if you have a ticketing system, at least you can be working on something while someone else is typing in what they need. And that's the point. If you put the burden on the person doing the requesting, there's no way you can be held responsible for misinterpreting what they've asked you to do because it's all written down there in the ticket. So get it in the ticket. Anyway, back here. So. <laughs> If something came in through email, you might forget about that email. But if it's in the ticketing system, you can just go in and say, okay, these are the tickets that are left to be done. You don't have to have post-it notes or anything like that. If anything, a ticketing system is going to save you time and energy. I can't imagine there's any sysadmin out there that doesn't like a ticketing system. So a ticket lets you capture exactly what people want done in their own words, and provides a way for them to confirm that you completed the task the way they wanted before you close the ticket. So basically, here's what I want. Here's what I did. Yep, that's done. Thank you. Goodbye. So basically, everyone agrees on what the work has to be done. And when it's done, they say, yep, thank you. Goodbye. Well, they may not say thank you. But (laughs) But they stop asking you for stuff. And sometimes that's Mm -hmm. just as good. Mm Mm-hmm. Tickets help you prioritize tasks. Every request is important. Some are more important than others. Mm -hmm. And the ticketing system helps you do that. You can look at the list of the things you have to do and decide which one you have to do first. It, It helps both the team leads and the managers, and it helps you because you can go in and see all the lists of things that need to be done and say, oh, my God, that thing needs to be done now because if we wait a week, we're going to be screwed. Yeah, and some ticketing systems have, you know, various different types of metadata or other fields mm-hmm. for, you know, due date or severity, other mm-hmm. things that can help you make those decisions. Yep. Keep in mind that tickets help distribute the work. When a task is captured in a ticket, the team leader, lead or manager can assign and reassign tickets to different members of the team to make sure no one gets burned out and also helps to ensure that everyone learns how to do things. Otherwise, you end up cultivating specialists within the team that always take tickets related to certain systems, which leads to problems later when that team member goes on vacation. So don't create any bus factor situations. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, exactly. That may be a very English term. Basically, if someone gets hit by a bus, the team can still do the work. That's what you want to avoid is single points of failure. You want a diversified team that can all do the work if needed. Yep. No single points of failure, either in hardware or in people. Exactly. 
Good advice. Now, very important. This is the most single important thing, audit trail. Tickets also provide an audit trail for tasks that require approval or proof of completion, like creating or revoking accounts, creating, granting new privileges, or patching software. When someone says, hey, who said it was okay to bot for, for that person to get access to production? And when it happened, you can answer the question because it's all right there in the ticket. You can see that their manager said, can you do this, please? And you agreed, and it went in. It completely absolves you of any repercussions. Why did you give them access? Because they told me. And no, I didn't. Yes, you did. Look at the ticket system. Right, exactly. Frequently that, you know, some some ticket systems will interact with email or other things to, you know, get those approvals and then everything's entered right in the ticket. You can see the history of who said what or or why. Mm-hmm. And usually, you know, people are good about posting links to the documentation they may or may not be using to make those decisions. Yep. Cover your ass is one thing I've heard that described as a number of times. And I think that's that's definitely right on the nose is, you know, if you have that history, you can prove you can be there like, look, no, I did it here. Here's when the ticket was closed. Mm-hmm. That work was completed. If mm-hmm. you didn't, you know, help, helps you solve, resol- you know, resolve conflicts before they get started, which is always better. Another thing I recommend, if the solution to a ticket involves something particularly complex or not commonly known document that in the ticket because sure enough two months later the exact same problem is going to come along and you're going to say oh yeah i fixed that but i can't remember how i fixed that if you documented it in the ticket you'd be able to go back and look for it and trust me that will save you so much hassle later yes definitely and while you know it's always best to make sure you try to go get that documented in in whatever you know resource you use for that tickets can be previous tickets can be a you know a, a mine of information to find uh, especially as you're mm-hmm. trying to look in past history and maybe build some new documentation now we're more than halfway through this article and they start going over now oh no sorry only a third of the way so he starts giving recommendations for ticketing systems so basically, you should favor ticketing systems that allow you to create dependencies or links between tickets so that you know that task A depends on task B, so you have to do task B first. And so that actually makes it easier to build up a master ticket to track a project. So create a master ticket and create all these individual different tasks that have to be completed. And then you can create orders. And when I get a ticket and it may be part, uh, you know, a subtask of another ticket and I have all these different things that I need to do, I actually go in and create different subtasks because there's nothing worse than coming back to a ticket after not working on it for, say, a week because you got sidetracked, trying to remember what you'd done and what needs to be done still. And if you listed out all of those tasks right when you started, you know exactly what needs to be done next. And, Believe me, I hate remembering stuff that I don't have to remember. And the different steps in a ticket, if I'm going to be working on it over multiple days or weeks, I'm not going to remember it all. Yeah, no, you definitely won't. And then you'll burn a bunch of your own time trying to refigure mm-hmm. everything out, stuff that mm-hmm. you've already done. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, now, where were we? Right over here. Uh, I wanted to be there. Okay. So 
how to manage and organize tickets. Basically, you should have different um, states. There should be an open, an open where it needs to be completed, but it hasn't been assigned. You have to have an assigned state so you know it's in someone's queue, um, but they haven't started yet. And then you need in progress so that someone's it's assigned and it's being worked on. And then you want resolved where, yep, I've done the work and you assign it back, say, to the person who uh, gave you the, who entered the ticket. And then they confirm that the work has been done satisfactorily and they close the ticket. Um, that That's a process that, that we've started using here lately. And I really like it because um, once you've finished it, you resolve it and you assign it back to the original person who entered it. It's out of your queue. It's in their, their queue and it's up to them to confirm that it's done properly. And once they do that, you're good to go because they, they set the done. standard, right? They had the request. They mm-hmm. confirmed it was done. Mm-hmm. You're good to go. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next point they have is a well-run ticketing system should provide the team with the answers to a few important questions. The first question is, what should I work on now? And many a time I've used that. I've just basically gone in and looked up the list of tickets assigned to me. It's sorted in priority order. And I uh, um, sometimes I work on the top one. Not always, sometimes. So, another key to managing tickets is to make sure all of your requests are captured in the ticketing system. You know, sometimes a coworker can be guilty of trying to skip ahead in the line by messaging you with a request or walking directly to your desk to ask you to do something. Ticketing system stops all that. It stops your interruptions. Used to have a user that used to message me or a colleague several times a day asking us a question or asking us to do something. We say, no, we can't do that without a ticket. And eventually we just stopped responding altogether to their incoming questions. And eventually they stopped messaging us and now they just open a ticket. So it may be nice to try and help people out, but you're only hurting yourself in the long run. Exactly. It also protect. It, it also protects you because if you stop working what start stop working on your assigned task, that assigned task suffers. So get people to enter a ticket, let your manager decide what you get to work on next. You know, or you can always go to your manager and say, hey, listen, they've approached me. It sounds really important. Do you think I should work on this now? They then get to decide your ass is covered. Right. Exactly. I know I'm talking, I know we're talking a lot about covering, covering your ass, but Really, you don't want to work on stuff that hasn't been authorized by your manager. You're going to get into real shit one day if you do. Right. I mean, you just want to keep it. You want to have uh, you know clear communication and transparency, mm-hmm. and ticketing systems mm-hmm. can help you with that, so that it's clear what yep. you should be doing, when, and how that how that happened. And your team wants to know that they can rely on you to get the stuff done that you've been asked to be done in a reasonable length of time. But if you start working on other stuff, you're going to get a horrible reputation for never completing stuff on time. That's not good for your career. It's not good for your team. Exactly. Finally, as a manager, be careful to distribute work fairly amongst your team. Even if one member of the team happens to be an expert on a particular service, don't assign that person every task related to that service. 
let others get trained up on it. Now, the last page. Oh, no, that is, that, that is the last page. I'm sorry, I thought there was more. Um, but yeah, pick a ticketing system, any ticketing system you like. You're not going to be 100% happy with anyone you choose, so don't worry about that. Someone, you know, it's like choosing a favorite hard drive. Use the one you like. And don't get upset if someone starts complaining about one particular one just because. Yeah, use it something that meet. works for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. can read reviews and other experiences to try to mm-hmm. decide if this is a worthy candidate. Maybe try a couple mm-hmm. out. Um, I know a lot of people have used OS Ticket. Uh, I've mm-hmm. used Request Tracker in the past. Uh, everyone oh, has their RT. own. Yes, yeah. RT. Um, everyone has their own favorite. But yeah, find something that works for you. Uh, a lot of people use. Um, you know, hybridize some systems that maybe aren't yeah. necessarily ticketing systems, but but use some of these concepts to help manage their workflows. There's a lot of options. Uh, FreeBSD project uses Bugzilla. Mm-hmm. There you go. Interesting. Okay, well, that's great. Hopefully, if people aren't familiar with ticketing systems, this gives them something to start. Uh, if you aren't and you have something that seems amenable to this kind of work desk, it can be good, especially maybe if you're on a team that's growing or taking on new responsibilities or is interacting with a with another team. These are all things that ticketing systems can help serialize, help make clear, help make transparent. Um, if you do have some personal favorites you want to let people know about, feel free to send us some feedback and uh, maybe we'll talk about it here on the show. And... If ticketing systems are something you're already familiar with, you're probably pretty exacting in the rest of your stack, including your hardware. If that's the case, and you need some new hardware, there's really only one place for you to go, and that is IX Systems. IX Systems is the premier retailer of hardware for open source software. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There, you'll find their white paper. It's a great white paper for buying hardware for open source systems. It lays out a lot of the reasons, uh, considerations, things that you should be thinking about. And when you read it, you'll probably realize IX Systems is the answer. Don't waste your time. Don't go to some of these big, big name retailers where you have to go through, click through a ton of confusing options and a complicated web form, can't get on the phone to anyone. Maybe you've had some bad support experiences where you're calling some big vendors, they won't service your machine, takes too long, they won't honor your contract. If any of this sounds like your past experience, please check out IX Systems. Give them a call. You'll find their super talented team of sales engineers standing by, ready, ready at the phones, ready to take your call, and ready to become your new partner in your business, your project, your open source project, whatever you need to need to get done. IX Systems is there to help. Whether that's you know you're upgrading your SAN technology for the new data center you're building, or you just want a new backup machine for the home office. It doesn't matter. IX has done it. It's been there. They know. Take a look at some of the people they work with here. People like LinkedIn, uh, people like NASA, Splunk, Tumblr, Hitachi, big names, people like Adobe. That's because IX Systems is a trusted name. And partially because they partner with incredible people, people like Intel. They've got amazing Intel processors in all their machines, you can make sure that you get the processor that you need with the right motherboard, the right firmware version. IX knows how to do it. And you get white glove service with that. They've burned and tested the hard drives before they're shipped. They'll install and configure any operating system or software that you need so that it's ready to be shipped to the data center, racked up, and turned online. That is the extra mile that IX goes to. Plus, when you talk to a real human, you realize that they can answer questions that you didn't even realize you know. You know, maybe you're not an expert in SaaS. Not a technology you've used. IX Systems knows all about it. Maybe you're not yet an expert in OpenCFS. 
iX System knows a ton about that. Part of that is because they're also a great member of the community. One more reason to love them. You'll see them at a lot of conferences, whether it's BSD or Linux or just open source technology in general. They contribute upstream. They have open source projects themselves. And their blog is just a ton of fun. Like, go on over there. You'll see they were just at VMworld. They've got a wrap-up post there. And they frequently have announcements about some of the new stuff they're playing with, like iX System has unleashed servers built on the new Intel Xeon scalable processes. Go read that blog post if you want to find out more. And really, any post tagged with server envy is worth checking out. They make some beautiful machines. You can buy you can buy them on Amazon if you just want to pick up a free NAS Mini or get a custom machine built for your custom workflow. That's the power of iX Systems. And thank you to iX Systems for sponsoring this here TechSnap program. Okay, thanks, IX. Now we've got one more story in the main segment today. Mm-hmm. This one mm-hmm. will probably you might you might see ramifications of this, maybe maybe not, but it's big news either way. It's time to move away from Symantec and Google. While well, Google and Google Chrome are leading the push on this, which is a good idea. We've covered some of the semantic problems before. Uh, Basically, uh, their infrastructure was sort of deficient, and there's a lot of suspicion surrounding a, a number of certificates that were issued by them and um, various brand names that I actually didn't know uh, were related. But they're going to solve this. They're going to solve this very soon. So. At the end of July, the Chrome team and the PKI community converged upon a plan to reduce and ultimately remove trust in the semantics infrastructure in order to uphold users' security, pro- secure users' security and privacy when browsing the web. This plan arrived at after a significant debate on the Blink Link forum. Blink Dev forum would allow a reasonable time for a transition to new independently managed partner infrastructure while semantic man modernizes and redesigns its infrastructure to adhere to industry standards. Okay, that sounds really good. So in here, we're going to go through through the plan and sort of overview of some of the timeline. But basically, it was posted to a news group. Do any of you still use news groups? It's been a long time since I used one, but I used to love them. Um, so they... They drew attention to a series of questionable website authorization cer- authentication certificates issued by Semantics, Semantic Corporation's PKI. Basically, it consists of a series of certificate authorities under various brand names, including Thought. Is that how you pronounce it? Thought. Thought. I think so. Verisign, Equifax, GeoTrust, and RapidSSL. I used to use RapidSSL. Is that I right? I don't think I, I have any valid certificates from them anymore. I think everything has moved over to Let's Encrypt. By the way, over the weekend, the first fully automated uh, certificate renewal distribution to my website and installation on the server and restart of services occurred. Is that right? That's exciting. Complete, completely unattended. No problem. The only reason I knew, the only the first one with no problems. The first two that I tried to there were permission errors because mm. they were the certs that I installed manually because uh, I didn't yet have the website going. Yes. But once I fixed that, I think I looked the only reason I knew it happened is because I've got logs. Mm-hmm. And the logs email me 
to tell me what happened. And overnight, I think there was eight or nine certificates renewed. Wow. Now they all have they all haven't been pushed out yet because the renewal pr process happens overnight, and then they get copied of the website, and then all the clients check in and pull down their new cert. But within by tomorrow morning, they should all be installed. Or I'll get error messages, but we'll see. Yeah, you'll find so, out real, anyway, real quick. Every everything's on Let's Encrypt now. That's beautiful. And problem. also, my Nagios alerts will start going off and say, "Hey, listen, this certificate has less than thirty yeah. days on it. So you look you at better that. start looking at it." So, so anyway, so here's what: if you were a site operator, in other words, if you got a certificate from one of these folks. You really should take action because Chrome is going to stop trusting certificates issued by these entities, by these aforementioned entities. So starting with Chrome 66, Chrome will remove trust in semantic issued certificates issued prior to June 1st, 2016. Chrome 66 is currently scheduled to be released to Chrome beta users on March 15th, 2018. So those certificates will be almost two years old at the time. So really they should have, unless you've got a multi-year certificate, they should have be almost past your, your um, use by date. Uh, it'll go to Chrome stable users around April 17th in 2018. If you're a site operator with a certificate issued by a semantic CA prior to June 1st, 2016, then prior to the release of Chrome 66, in other words, you've got until March of next year, which is about six months, you will need to replace the existing certificate with a new certificate from any certificate authority issued by Chrome. Who's that, you might ask? Well, go to the Chrome website, you'll find out. Additionally, by December 1st, 2017, Semantic will transition issuance and operation of public trusted certificates to DigiCert. We've covered that, that DigiCert was yeah. taking over. And certificates issued from the old semantic infrastructure after this date will not be trusted in Chrome. So basically, you really only have until December 1st. Yeah, because that's, they say that's they, coming up real quick now. That's that's less than three months. That's two and a half months, isn't it? October, November, yeah, two and a half months. Now, in October 2018, Chrome 70 will be released, which will fully remove trust in Semantic's old infrastructure. You've got almost a year to get this sorted out. I would have thought anyone that had heard the issues with Semantic would have figured this out already. So... This will affect any certificate chaining to semantic roots except for the small number issued by the independently operated and audited subordinates, subordinate CAs previously disclosed to Google. So basically, everyone, yeah, yeah. except for a small number there. Um, people may think this is really heavy-handed, and why is Google intruding into something like this? Well, Google happens to produce a very popular browser. And they've decided to protect their users by saying, hey, listen, these certificates are dodgy. Uh, you might go to a website thinking it's this website, the one you've known and trusted for ages, but it's actually this um, malicious website over here. 
And they're not doing it to be mean. They're not doing it to be vindictive. They're doing it to protect us, the users. And I fully support what they're doing. Anyone with a certificate might complain, hey, listen, why do I have to replace this six-month-old certificate when I've still got another? Well, it's not a six-month-old certificate. It's been anything after June 1st, 2016. Most people renew for a year. Look at it this way. It's a service to your users. If you've got to replace the certificate, do the right thing. Be nice to your users. Get Let's Encrypt or something else. Not everyone can use Let's Encrypt. Yeah, that's true. There may be some, uh, you know, infrastructural challenges or requirements, mm-hmm. and you can't can't do that. Um, but there are yeah. other legitimate CAs that are out there. So yeah, just mm-hmm. choose carefully. Do your research. Yep. Uh, it shouldn't be a huge deal. Mm-hmm. If you run a website or there's websites on your server, I suggest you do a preemptive audit and find out who's issued a semantic certificate and start telling people to get their ass and gear and get it fixed up before oh, yeah, you I like fall that. apart. That's a good point. Yeah. Excellent. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you want to add there? No. That's everything. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's a something just you need to stay on top of as always. Turns out uh secure encryption on the web, it's a lot of work. Maybe you want to make sure that everything else can be as simple as possible. Well then, head on over to DigitalOcean.com. There, you will find cloud computing designed for developers, but really, it's just designed to be easy, simple, and oh so fast. You can spin up a brand new droplet that's like a cloud VM in in the cloud. Yeah, that's right, in 55 seconds or less. Some people get it for less. It's so fast. Less than a minute from now, you can have a brand new machine running FreeBSD, Ubuntu, CentOS, Fedora, Container, Linux, really whatever you need to solve your next problem or make your next project succeed. You'll find it at DigitalOcean. And you can use our promo code SNAPOcean. One word, SNAPOcean. That's just like the text number comes, SNAPOcean. Put them together, boom, get a magic promo code out of it, and then you'll get a $10 credit. Prices start at just $5 a month. So that's two months for free. You can head on over to their pricing page to learn more. You'll find uh, they've got both hourly and monthly pricing. I love that hourly pricing. It makes things super simple they stated it right up here up front yeah, there's no guesswork you're not going to have to worry about what your bill is going to look like at the end of the month use it when you need it destroy it when you don't they have great apis and they integrate well with you know things like terraform ansible pretty much any of the popular tools out there has digital ocean support that's one of the things that makes it so great plus that api even if you just want to use curl on the command line or, or your favorite http client it's sanely designed it's fast it's easy and they have great documentation. So it's super simple to get started. A lot of people have made apps for it. We use it here on the show. There's apps on the phone. There's command line apps. There's web apps. All kinds of great ways to manage your DigitalOcean infrastructure. And best of all, they have an incredible dashboard of their own that leverages that API. It's simple. It's intuitive. It's not overly complex. Kind of kind of a theme here. Maybe you're picking up on that. But don't, don't, don't think that DigitalOcean skimps. They've got a ton of the cloud features you've come to know and love from other providers Cloud firewalls, no more mucking with IP tables. They've got load balancing, monitoring, high CPU droplets, attachable block storage, private inter-data center networking, intra, excuse me. Uh, that's, that's how simple it is. They have all the things you need, storage, networking, and that's not like, they don't skimp on the networking. This is 40 gigabit E right to the hypervisor. This says like really good transit, 
excellent peering. DigitalOcean knows what they're doing. You'll get great speeds. Go spin up a droplet. Just play with it. Humor me here. Spin one up. Do an app to get update or whatever package manager you're using, and you will see what I'm talking about. It's super fast. Use it as a local mirror. Use it as a squid proxy. Use it as a you know a privoxy proxy to filter ads and other things for you. There's no end of use cases for DigitalOcean. Plus, maybe you've seen them. I'm almost certain you have. You'll find that DigitalOcean has some of the best community documentation out there, not just for their own tools, but for pretty much any open source thing you might want to do on a server. Uh, they have an incredible community of active users, and they've hired real editors to take contributions from those communities, community members and turn them into some of the finest documentation available on the web. That plus a bunch of sponsorships that they do to open source projects, free hosting, ISO hosting, that sort of thing, it really goes to show that DigitalOcean is they run by the same kind of people we are, they believe in the same things, and they just want to make a great platform for you to work on your next project, to start a new company, to make a startup, whatever you're trying to do, DigitalOcean is there. Or you just want to learn, you want to have some fun, DigitalOcean is a great place for that too. So use our promo code SNAPOcean, go to DigitalOcean.com and get started today. Thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring us here at the TechSnap program. And that brings us to today's feedback, the time in the show where we take time to go over the feedback you guys have given us, be that letters, tweets, posts on Reddit, it doesn't matter, we love it all, uh, and it gives us a way to interact with you, one of the highlights of the show. First up, Dan, you had a little bit of a kind of feedback of your own, what was it? Uh, I got a scam call last night claiming a lawsuit had been filed oh, no, and that's not stuff good. like that, so... I wanted everyone to listen to the audio just so they have an idea of what a, what one of these scam phone calls feels like. And be sure to to, to let your um, friends and relatives hear what one of these sounds like. So this is playing off my phone, so it may not be the best audio, but it'll give you an idea. Just a sec. Are you going? Go play. Under your name and your tax ID for the tax fraud and the investigating team of our department is investigating you and your family. We had tried to notify you regarding this issue in previous six months, but we have never got response from you. So it has been considered as an intentional fraud and lawsuit has been filed under your name by the Canada government. You may call our department number 514-552. 9913 for more information before we download your case into the courthouse. Thank you. So, basically, they're trying to scare you into calling and say, oh my God, what happened? What happened? Then they say, well, you can take care of this right now. Just give us your credit card details. And that, that, that's what it's all about. Um, Yikes. Yeah. So you gave I, them all your details, right? I'm sure you did I right did, away. I did. Yeah. I called Excellent. them right away. Yeah, no, don't call them back. Uh, Canada Revenue won't call you like this. No, right? No, certainly no official agency agency would. No, they don't. Just wait, wait, wait for a letter. Yeah, no kidding. Good advice. Well, thank you. That's a very real world application. It's exactly the yes. kind of stuff that people will run into. And, you know, especially when it catches you got off guard in the middle of a busy day and you're just like, oh, no, what do I need to deal with now? You don't you might not like take a step back think about it calmly but that's really important to do 
Um, so here's just, you know, a little bit of training material. You can also maybe maybe use that or similar things. You can kind of find recordings on the internet too and, and maybe a good idea to, um, you know, introduce it to vulnerable people in your household, uh, family, friends who you think might be at risk of getting tricked by those things because it can be helpful to have some, you know, real world experience with it before it happens to you for real. Yes. Okay, well, thank you for that, Mr. Dan. I guess let's jump into the regular feedback, starting with a letter from Jake Roberts. Thanks for writing to us, Jake. Uh, Jake writes, I just finished reading about the recent Time Warner data breach. It, once again, involved an unsecured Amazon bucket. Do you guys think that maybe it's time for Amazon to start forcing people to use these services in a more secure way? I know in a perfect world, the answer would be no. Thanks, as always, for the great show. P.S. Did we ever hear how Wes got into computing? I'm not sure if you did, but first, let's answer that first question. What do you think, mm-hmm. Mr. Dan? I think it's fairly easy for a third party to do this thing, and they already do. Shodan does this already. Uh, they basically, sh- shodan.io uh, scans the internet looking to see what's answering where, and then it categorizes that stuff. It's used by security researchers and, I'm sure, nasty people. So, in the long in the long run, you're responsible for your own actions. If you've got data, it's up to you to secure it properly. Yes, Amazon could start scanning, but they shouldn't have to. You're responsible for your own actions. So, make sure that your data isn't sitting there in a bucket waiting for someone to come along and scoop it out. Um, yeah. You, if I was running a, a small ISP, I might consider scanning, but the bigger you get, the more work it is to do. And no, I don't think Amazon should start it, but it'd be nice if they did. What do you think? You know, yeah, I think I agree with you. Um, it it would be nice, and I think it is it is their onus to make it um, somewhat simple, or at least very clear in their documentation how to secure that. I think they do actually have do a fair job of doing that, um, mm-hmm. and you know, then it falls to us and to others, and we need to you know have good education out there. I think also there's like sometimes a misconception or attitude that you know AWS there's so much there that's managed or done for you, but it really you know it doesn't kind of has just changed what operations and security is and you have new primitives but there's still a lot of things that you need to do and understand the complex interactions between mm-hmm. your tools and other things mm-hmm. one thing i did see recently was this um over at github something called scout 2 scout 2 is a security tool that lets aws administrators assess their environment security posture <laughs> scanning using the aws api so this might be something that people can use i'm sure there are other similar projects if people know about them let us know we can talk about them here on the show um, yes, but, but it does seem like there has been, you know, more things developed so that it makes it easier to go try to assess, build up a report, make sure that you're in compliance or whatever you need to. Um, but yeah, do your do your homework, learn about security best practices. There's a ton of guides out there for AWS security primers and other things. And then it just comes down to pretty much anything else, you know, like make sure there's a process, have rules, regulations, mm-hmm. guides that you follow, maybe document mm-hmm. things with tickets, and then make sure all those things are followed every time so that you have a consistent same environment. It, it's pretty cheap to go and rent a DigitalOcean droplet or similar, install an OS on it, install um, Nmap on it, 
and then go and scan all the IP addresses that you have on Amazon Web Services or whatever other services you have. But just do that simple thing, and that should open your eyes to a lot of things. Yes, definitely. Pur pur purchase a VM from a fourth party. You know, not the one you do business with for all your gear, but another one. And do the scan from there. Might be the cheapest and most uh, cost-effective $5 a month you ever spend. Yes, and there's, you know, look into, maybe people can recommend these too, but, uh, you know, there's various open source vulnerability scanners, pen testing toolkits, mm -hmm. other things that you can leverage if you want to, you know, take a mm -hmm. deeper dive into this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, uh, thank you, Mr. Jake. As to how I got into computing, um, I was kind of always interested in it. Um, being a nerdy little kid that I was, uh, you know, definitely interested in science and math and then computers. So I started with like uh, some older Apple computers back in the day when they're still black and white. Uh, I forget which model it was now. It wasn't a two. Uh... Back when I got interested in computers, the things they were selling at the time were the Atari. Uh, they they were still selling computers without keyboards. This was before the Mac. Right. Oh, very nice. This was still when hobbyists would buy their computer and assemble it. And by assemble, I mean solder. Yes, the real assembly. Yes. So I moved on um, from the uh, from the from from those Macs. Uh, I think I had used some DOS for a while. Uh, and uh, too long spent in Windows. Hmm. Uh, Visual Basic was actually my first uh, programming language, if you don't count some very terrible shell scripts, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, batch scripts, rather. Uh, and, yeah. then, and then eventually I discovered the wonderful world of open source Linux. I think Ubuntu mm, 7 something, 8 something was my ah. first, uh, first of that series. And then uh, from there, the rest has just been history using computers uh, since then, using Linux since then for various things, especially once I started doing uh, like going to uh, undergrad university, doing physics there. There's a lot of Linux in that field. So kind of nonstop since then. Hmm. That sounds good. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I have dark memories of various Windows admin tasks that I've done over the years and some Mac tasks. But uh, these days, all Linux. And some, well, there's some, I have a BSD system too, so. Yeah. But they're, you know, closer related. <laughs> At least in spirit. Okay. Yes. So, moving on, we've got a letter from David about uses for extended attributes. Now, we covered extended attributes. Let's see, that was episode 335. So, you can check that episode yes. out more if you want to see that. Um, but David writes... I have a few uses for extended attributes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for telling us about them, David. Number one, storing S3 metadata. If you want to store data from S3 locally without losing anything, you need to find a way to store some extra metadata that might be included, including ACLs. Since the principles in S3 are not translatable to a Unix-style user, ordinary Linux file system, ACLs won't work. In my use case, I convert the ACL to YAML and store it in an extended attribute. Then it can be read on the command line, converted back, and applied if a file needs to be re-uploaded. So it just looks like another case of being able to attach extra information, extra data, have it sit right with your file, and as long as you are careful about you know which file systems you copy that to, it'll stay right there. Number two, add bit detection to a lesser file system. Well, not a replacement for ZFS, storing the file's checksum in an extended attribute can ensure it is easily found when you want to verify the integrity 
of the data. Yeah, and a little bit cleaner uh, on your eyes when you're doing an LS in the directory and you don't have a bunch of checksum files sitting there with the same or similar name. That's a good tip. And number three, thumbnails. I haven't attempted this one yet, but Linux and some, but not all file systems, support extended attributes with values of 64K. That is long enough for a small thumbnail to be attached to the full-size version. Might be something you can leverage in a file manager or other things without having to have a separate folder to store things. So it looks like these are all great suggestions. Thank you very much, David. Mm -hmm. Um, If anyone else has additional things they're using with extended attributes, I know I would love to hear about it. I'm sure that people are getting ideas right now and thinking, oh my God, that'll be so useful for... And then it just grows from there. Exactly. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Okay, so Jake Roberts wrote in again. Look at that. Yes. The title here, Internet in the Boonies. Mm-hmm. Good morning. Thanks for continuing to do TechSnap. Hey, it's our pleasure. Thanks for continuing to watch TechSnap. I live in a place where modern internet service isn't available. Southwest Missouri. Go figure. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm, that's terrible to hear. I'm sorry, Jake. There is a company offering to sell me what they claim will be fast, unlimited internet service starting next month. But I have two questions. Do either of you know about this company, uh, Visat or Exceed? Uh, I, I personally have not heard about it. Um, second, I've read that VPNs don't work well with satellite internet service. Can you explain why or why not this isn't true? Thanks for your time. Jake. Well, I've never heard of them, but we've we've talked about satellite internet providers before. And, and the biggest problem with a satellite internet provider is that they're often only one way. They're for download only. So basically you have a dial-up connection where you make your requests and then your download comes over the satellite, which is the faster link. So having a two-way communication is not that easy, which that if that's the case for these companies, then that's why the VPN won't work is because the outgoing is not the incoming. That that may be why it doesn't work. I, I, I've never heard anyone trying to run a, a satellite, sorry, run a VPN over a satellite connection, but I'm going to guess that unless both incoming and outgoing are over the same link, the VPN isn't going to work. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I have not tried that either. Uh, it may limit your choice of VPN as well or make it more difficult. The thing that came to my mind was, um, I know some people struggle with uh, you know, TCP embedded in TCP, uh, and I was wondering maybe if a satellite yeah. would exacerbate that as well. Yeah, you want everything UDP mm-hmm. over a VPN. Yeah, exactly. If you can, if you can. Now, just quickly searching, I've, I've seen, I found something that says VPN over satellite, more than viable via satellite. So okay. maybe what you're hearing has been fixed, but I would start searching around for that very thing, like the specific VPN that you're planning to use and the specific company that you want to use. I can't think you're the first unless these companies are absolutely brand new. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So if anyone else has experience here, uh, maybe you use a VPN over satellite internet every day, write in, let us know, or you can head over to techsnap.reddit.com. Maybe this would be a good place to have a discussion about satellite internet woes and tips and tricks. Yes, please. Thank you. Okay, looks like we just had one more thing today, and that is uh, something about 1Password. 
Looks like yeah. looks like there is now a command line tool in public mm -hmm. beta. Yes, that looks pretty cool. Yeah, it looks like just a handy command line interface to one password. That that is, I don't personally use the service, but it, uh, you know, we certainly talked about it here. I know people who do, and this is the kind of like extra feature nerd cred that really appeals to me. Just in that, yeah, finally I can interact with this in a way that's easy. I don't have to jump through hoops to do scripting or other applications for it. Simple, easy. I haven't tried it, but hey, looks real handy. Maybe it'll be handy to you guys. Yeah, I I tend to use everything via my laptop which has a GUI and so the password manager right there so I'm not sure the use case but it might be useful for an application or something but yeah exactly um, <laughs> and maybe brings parity for some people like I will sometimes use uh, KPCLI which is a key pass uh, command line client so I've definitely had that before where oh, yes. you know oh mm -hmm. this is on a secure system that I can only SSH to or similar uh, mm -hmm. yeah, let us know if you use it. You can provide us feedback. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact or techsnap.reddit.com or you can find us both on Twitter. Many ways. No excuses not to write in. We look forward to seeing and hearing your feedback. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right, everyone's favorite, the Roundup. Let's jump right in. That's what we do with the Roundup. First up, Andy Rubin apologizes for Essential's humiliating customer data leak. Yikes, I don't like the sound of that. What's going on? <clears throat> well, this is a new uh, Android iPhone. Uh, <coughs> cough, sorry. <laughs> it's a new Android phone. And people who wanted to order this Essential phone were being asked to provide their driver's license. Okay, but they're asked to provide it over email. And email isn't always secure. So, um Basically, he apologized, and that's it, I suppose. But they also confirmed that this affected 70 customers. So either it was in place for a very short period of time, and there's high demand, or it was in place for a week, and there's only one being, 10 being sold a day. I would rather think it was only in place for a couple of hours, and people started complaining about it. But basically... They're going to come up with some other kind of shipment confirmation requirements. Why they want to confirm the shipment, I'm not so sure. Because if they confirm, if, if the address is being shipped to is the, the address that you verify with via your credit card, you're good as gold because the bank, sorry, the bank, the credit card company has said, yep, that's a good address, ship. I don't. I don't understand why they had to confirm it. Yeah, that is a little some other way. That is a little weird. I've never seen anyone else have to do that. Maybe they're trying to get around something in their uh, credit card agreement, where you know this type of transaction is cheaper than that kind of transaction, and they're just trying to trying to save a little bit of money. Really, I really don't know. That that's. Most decisions are financial, especially when it comes to selling a high-value item like a cell phone. That's my guess. How do we confirm this? And someone with not enough experience said, oh, we'll get them to show us their driver's license. I mean, that's very simple. I've never had any vendor ask me to do that. They either ship to the PayPal address or they ship, they authenticate the address with the credit card vendor 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I haven't had that either. Weird. Well, hopefully, hopefully it looks like they are dealing with it and taking it seriously and hopefully trying to trying to figure out how to do this right going forward. I hope so. This is terrible. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Low-tech privacy breach earned Aetna lawsuit for revealing HIV patients. Yikes. Breach occurred when Aetna mailed customers about a privacy lawsuit settlement. So you, you wouldn't think, you know, how did they breach it in the email? Well, there is a window. There's a window of opportunity. That window of opportunity happened to be a little plastic window on the envelope. It meant that you could read part of the letter. And they third-partied this out to someone, and they just didn't, you know, oh, we use these envelopes. We use these. And I'm sure there was no agreement between the two as to what size of envelope or the placing or whatever. But basically, the window that they stuffed the envelope in, uh, sorry, the, the window on the envelope into which the letter was stuffed revealed a little too much information. So this isn't a data security. You know, it's not so much a data security breach as a, oops, we put too much information. They might as well just printed the, sent them a postcard. Like, just printed the envelope, taped it up, printed the letter, taped it up, and sent it off without an envelope. Yeah, exactly. That, uh, that's all the stuff right there. Yeah, I, I would say that the, um, um, it's not so much Aetna as the third party that is, is, um, uh, at, at fault here, not so much Aetna is ultimately responsible. Ultimately responsible, but I'm sure that the uh, third party that they contacted for mailing this out is the problem. Yeah, that definitely seems like it. One of those things when you you know subcontract, etc., that it uh, can be difficult to get right. Um, one interesting aspect is that privacy suits are sometimes brought by anonymous plaintiffs. In this case, it was still anonymous, but the suit was filed on behalf of Andrew Beckett, who was the real-life protagonist in the 1993 film Philadelphia. And I think that's a very nice homage um, because he filed an unlawful termination lawsuit based on AIDS discrimination. And that, that was a true movie, by the way. It's based on a true story. Oh, interesting. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Yikes. Well, hopefully they get that together, but we yes. must move on. Yes. Over at crunchtools.com, here we've got a comparison of Linux container images. Now, I'm hoping that you can provide more information on this than I can, because um, I thought it was useful because it it would give people who are new to containers and want to say, oh, well, if I use a container on Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7, what does it look like? Or what is the same thing uh, on uh, the atomic uh, image on RHE look like? Or what's it like on Fedora? It gives you all these different ones, including CentOS, Debian, Ubuntu, and Alpine. So basically, you can see the size on disk. Um, they also include a life cycle, how long a container is good for. And it, it surprisingly... It varies from six months to ten years. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Like, 
who's going to install a container and have it running for 10 years? That's got to be some pretty secure software. Yes, it must. Or like very isolated or running maybe to run some old piece of equipment or something. But yeah, like... Like a nuclear reactor. Um, yes. Okay. No, I think that's a spot on summary. Uh, you know, it is just a good guide. If you're not familiar with these things, there are a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of players uh, and there's a lot of different formats. So I think this is a great guide to try to Try to just like split that up, understand what's going on and some of the, you know, some of the trade-offs, things that you should know before you maybe make a decision for your organization. And containers are still in flux, I'm sure. Yes, definitely. Things are changing all the time. Um, what's the dominant ecosystem? There's lots of new options, um, some lesser options, things like things like Project Atomic. There's, of course, Docker. There's Container Linux. There's Rocket. There's... Uh, the OCI specifications. There's a, there's a lot going on. Uh, hopefully this helps. If you guys like it, let us know. Hopefully it's useful to you. Um, Linux containers, I think, will only become more popular, learn more from zones and jails, and so mm-hmm. you'll probably see them all over the place if you haven't seen them already. Yep. Okay, so uh, more data breach. Instagram alerts high-profile users their data may have been accessed. Yikes. Yeah. So, quoting, Instagram is alerting high-profile users that someone could have accessed their phone number and email address through a bug in its software. In an email sent to verified users on Wednesday, Instagram said that no account passwords were accessed and the bug has been fixed. It is reminding these people to use two-factor authentication and unique passwords to protect their accounts. So I'm not really sure what got revealed, but they're being sort of, they're not really showing all the information here, but basically it may have, you, you, the phone number may have been been released, so take care of it. it. It may be pretty freaky to get a phone call from a fan, but yeah. It sort of highlights the risk you have when you're running this stuff. I wouldn't have thought they'd give out my phone number, though. No, I wouldn't think so either. And it sounds like they they didn't intend to. But no. Yeah. So. Yeah. One more thing you need to be worried about. Fortunately, I'm going to guess that it's a small number of people, relatively small number of Instagram users, because it's only verified users. Yes, exactly. And probably people who already suffer from similar problems are more, you know, subject to more attacks and maybe already have some mitigations or security practices or whitelist, blacklist, etc. in place. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so, too. So, water lily turbine. Yeah, this is pretty cool. And I must say, I'm entirely biased here. (laughs) <laughs> because this is this was developed in St. John's, Newfoundland, which uh, I know it sounds horrible, but I'm finding that surprising. I, I've not heard of many great things being developed in Newfoundland, and I know that's going to sound terrible. I know it sounds terrible. Yeah, what do you have against Newfoundland? Nothing, nothing at all. I'm very happy that this is coming from there. If you scroll down to the bottom of the page. It's being developed by a Canadian startup company based in St. John's, Newfoundland, Labrador. And I think it's great. Um, these guys have actually been developing things for the oil industry, which is has a significant presence in Newfoundland. 
and um, basically they're they're trying to do away with batteries on small uh, devices. And what this is, uh, imagine a um, a small turbine, uh, a three-bladed turbine, and it can work either off the wind or you can dunk it in the water or you can trail it behind your boat. I'll bet you could even put it on your backpack while you're cycling or something like that and have the wind generated. Oh, that's a great well. idea. But um, it will charge a smartphone in between 2.5 and 8 hours. Uh, if it's in the water, you need at least a 2.5 kilometer per hour water. Um, to give you an idea, most people walk at about 5 kilometers an hour, so it doesn't have to be really fast. So if you if it's going at three three point six kilometers an hour, it's going to charge your smartphone in two and a half hours. It's going to charge your GoPro in an hour. Um, similarly, in wind, it needs quite a strong wind. It needs a twenty five kilometer an hour wind to charge your smartphone in about eight hours. But if it goes up to thirty six kilometers an hour, and you don't want to be out cycling in that, but you might be cycling at thirty six kilometers an hour, most of you can easily do uh, twenty five, I'm sure. Um, but you could do a, a fairly good charge, and the price is pretty interesting. It's one hundred and twenty bucks U.S. delivered, and they don't they won't charge you until it ships. Yep. Uh, this is a pre-order, by the way. In Canada, it's about 160 bucks, but this is a 20% discount. Uh, they're going to start shipping in October. So yeah, this is. I, really, I can think of a lot of people that this would be useful for. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm, especially mm-hmm. you're you're you know hiking for a while. You need something. Maybe you don't have great solar in your area. This yeah, could be yeah, the trick for you. Yeah. And if if you've got. Um, if where you're if where you're hiking is always by the water, great. If where you're hiking is always windy, which there are a lot of places that are always windy, so I can see this being very useful. Excellent. Well, this is a neat find. What turned you on to it? Uh, someone on IRC, no, on uh, Twitter. Someone on Twitter, awesome, posted this. Okay, well, that's definitely something that I'm going to be looking in and referring all of my outdoorsy friends to as well. So thank you, Mr. Dan. Okay, so one final story for today's program, and uh, that is recursive file system entries, abusing yeah. fat for fun and profit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is devious. This is absolutely evil. Um, basically, what you do is you go in and you amend the contents of a file to be self-referential. Because basically it uses a pointer system. It says, okay, the, the next bit of this file is in this location. But all you do is you point back to the start of the file and you loop forever. But fortunately, the file also contains your size. So basically, when you report the size, it's only going to loop until it gets to that size. Or so I think. But basically, they've uh, given the example here of where they have a... 210k file system only 22k is is used but if you do an ls minus h there's a file on it which is four gig now that's pretty cool that is pretty cool wow and they go in they go in here and they describe the things that you need to do in order to accomplish that and i suggest you go in and try this and then try catting the file and find out They've actually done a cat um, 
Yeah, they did a cat of the fowl and then WC minus C to count the number of bytes, and they do get the right number of bytes. Interesting. Yeah, this is fascinating. Hex but dumps galore, so uh, watch out for it, that. It is, it is only on FAT. It's only on the FAT file system, which isn't heavily, isn't used as often as other things at the moment. Yeah, right, exactly. So it, it won't, you know, not necessarily applicable anywhere. But if you're interested in file systems, how they work, or, you know, just want to abuse a file system, check this article out. Yes. Excellent. Okay, well, we got to get out of here. Plenty more shows to do. You know that. We're busy people over here at Jupiter Broadcasting. But that doesn't mean you have to stop watching TechSnap. No, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archives of this show, the past incarnation, and all the other great shows on the network. Plus, there's the contact page where you can send letters right to us. Maybe they'll get on the show. And you can find the calendar that lets you know when we're here live. You can watch the live stream. Tons of great content there. If you really want some more of us, go to techsnap.reddit.com. You can interact with the community. See us over there as well. And we're both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. He is at techsnap underscore Dan. Thank you very much for joining me today, Mr. Dan. Any parting words for our dear audience? Have a good time and make sure you check those certs. Exactly. And we'll see you here next time for the next TechSnap program. Bye, guys. Bye.